most master mariners don't need to know what a sort of carp poisoning packet redirection attack looks like. It isn't of interest to them. But it is important to know that if you see this kind of behavior on your bridge or in your control room, it is likely that it's a cyber attack. And some idea of what to do in those circumstances is very beneficial. Welcome to the Shoreline Maritime Risk Podcast. In each episode, we'll look at real-time case studies, current events, and speak to the experts dealing with critical risks at sea. What really happens when a crisis strikes at sea? And what can you do to protect your ship? Welcome to this, the 13th in the series of Shoreline's Maritime Risk Podcast. This year was the first year in which the General Insurance Stress Test, overseen by the Bank of England, included a maritime cyber scenario. Today, we have the opportunity to speak with one of the authors of the chosen scenario, which was developed by the University of Plymouth's Maritime Cyber Threats Research Group. The scenario was conceived in line with the university's work as part of the 7 million euro CyberMar project, which aims to develop greater awareness of the cyber threats facing the global shipping fleet and considers the most effective ways of countering them. It was then demoed in the CyberShip Lab, a unique hardware-based maritime cyber security research and development platform supported by funding from Research England and several industry partners. Good afternoon. Shoreline has the pleasure of speaking to Professor uh, Kevin Jones, uh, who is the um, head of the Maritime Cyber Threats Research Group at the University of Plymouth. Welcome. Good afternoon. So it's a great opportunity, Kevin, for us to to, uh, touch base with you and discuss the interesting work that the university has been engaged with the Bank of England and PRA with respect to the disaster scenario planning around cyber threats and how that might be considered from the general insurance stress test perspective. This is an area of particular interest to Shoreline, given that we are situated in uh, as an insurer of cyber risk and we have a good deal of ship owners with whom we interact on a daily basis and we know from our own discussions with the London market that the idea of systemic risk and as far as it applies to cyber risk is something that is keeping many people awake at night so yeah if I could hand over to you and just if we could start really by looking at the the RDS the realistic disaster scenario that you have worked on with the PRA and just talk around that a little, if we may. Okay, no, happy to do that. I think to, to give a bit of context and background, we've been working in the general area of maritime cyber threats for quite a few years now. And one of the things that we found is, as, as an industry, it has a fairly large variation on the degree of sector-specific knowledge that you'll be getting sort of in, in conversations. So there have been lots of proposed cyber ship scenarios but we found that many of them are unrealistic and you know experienced mariners like yourself will look at them and say here are all the reasons why that actually couldn't happen in practice so one of the things we've put quite a lot of effort into and our group does contain cybersecurity experts as well as master mariners is trying to make sure that we design scenarios that have the effect that we need. And of course, very often that is dramatic and disastrous because that makes the point, but also are very realistic with respect to operating practices, approaches, and the way that the 
practitioners in the industry would actually expect things to be done. We've developed a number of scenarios ranging from relatively benign, as in you've lost, ac you've lost access to your active system, you know, how do you respond? Things that are sort of comfortably within the realm of normal operations, right through to disaster scenarios involving breaching, grounding, or even capsizing vessels. What we've wanted to make sure we do is when we present those, they're kind of, they're accurate. The mechanisms that, that we propose to cause those incidents, modular sufficient obfuscation to not be a, a masterclass in how to sink ships, are kind of viable. They are actually possible in the way that we're proposing with the kind of technology that we're proposing. And also they fit within operational parameters so they can be realistic. So working with the, the Bank of England on this particular scenario, what they were looking for was something that basically would have an obvious and dramatic effect. So it was very clear to the audience why this is a bad thing. It would have second order effects. So the fact that this kind of incident could happen to a single vessel may well have knock-on consequences that would affect a larger portion of the fleet. And there basically would be visible economic consequences to sort of to, to what we were doing in the scenario. So one of the things we wanted to look at was basically, would it be possible for a cyber incident to take control of a vessel and cause it to find itself in a position where there was genuine physical harm, not just sort of, you know, the, the obvious cyber attacks, you know, ransomware on a control system or something like that. We wanted to be able to go further. We wanted to be able to show that there would actually be physical risk associated with a cyber incident. So the particular scenario we put together basically involved taking control of steerage and propulsion systems of the vessel and causing it basically to, to run aground in sort of a, a location that was not advantageous for sort of, you know, follow on activity. Yeah, and I think that's it's very interesting having looked at the, the realistic disaster scenario that you've come up with because I think the conversation is skewed quite often by certain commentators, certainly in recent years around this issue, and it's almost elevated to some sort of Star Wars type conversation about how ships are going to be crashed into one another or, you know, the bad actors are going to take control and capsize a vessel or, mm -hmm. and, and, and really, as you say, to the, the ordinary mariner like myself, who's really relied on the Mark I eyeball most of his life at sea. Um, uh, and, and I must admit, I, I have left um, the sea for many years now, and I'm sure technology has changed a good deal since I was last uh, keeping watch on the bridge. But, but you know, there's a lot of scepticism from the old grey-haired man of the sea to say, well, you know, when we're in confined waters, it's, it's proper practice to have a helmsman on the wheel. Um, the vessel will be to master's orders. Um, the telegraph, the, the engine room will be manned and signals to change the engine will be issued by the telegraph. And, you know, for the, for the less well initiated in terms of what's possible from a, a cyber interventionist perspective, it's hard to see how one could take control of the steering and engine at that critical moment and create that, that, that situation. I mean, from my own perspective, I could see, you know, and, and everybody uses it perhaps too much, but the ever given situation where, where you had that, un that unfortunate event of the ship getting lodged in the Suez Canal. I could see, because the ship is in a choke point, because it is accessible from um, um, a network perspective, a, a, an internet perspective, 
that you might have a bit, an ability to black the engines out, which might have the same effect. But is it realistic to assume that you could take control of the steering and the, end, the propulsive systems when both are manned manually? So somewhat frighteningly, it is. Um, let, let me give you an example of a scenario that we use sort of as a test case. So um, large container carrier entering a port. In our particular case, it's one of the partner ports we work with in Spain. So we've crafted a scenario where there is an attack that's actually established weeks earlier as part of sort of a um, maintenance exercise. So upgrade the firmware to a couple of um, PLCs within the steering control system and within the propulsion control system. That malware is triggered when the vessel reaches a particular point on its journey. And there's a very short window of time to respond. So, you know, you mentioned um, telegraph control signals down to the engine room. Absolutely. So we've played this out with a number of different crews, ranging from sort of you were um, crusty old sea dog, as mentioned earlier, right through to cadets in training, but who are qualified to stand watch. So, you know, crews that actually could be running this vessel in these circumstances. And we've done it in our full bridge simulator, triggering the cyber attack in exactly the way that we've sort of set up. And we've shown within our ship lab that on the actual equipment, Within our ship lab, we have the actual control systems, the actual throttle systems. I will admit our rudder is about a foot rather than the actual size rudder, but all the control systems are the genuine hardware, as are all the bridge and navigation systems. And what we found is we can set up an attack where the response time from the crew needs to be less than a minute. We've done it with tags attached. We've done it in all kinds of different weather conditions. We've basically tried every scenario that our master mariners have been able to say, yeah, but. So, yeah, okay, you want tags attached? We'll attach tags. You want four tags? Okay, we can do that. We can have four attached and another four standing there if you want. We've played through all of the scenarios. What we've generally found is with a sophisticated attack like the one we set up, and it's not easy to do that, but it is within the bounds of feasibility that could be done. The basically, about nine times out of 10, we get exactly the effect we want. The one time that we've seen it not happen, they managed to avoid the target we were aiming them for, but still actually grounded the vessel on the other side of the channel. Because with that kind of attack, you really have effectively seconds to make a decision. We found that you know well-trained crews will mitigate it quite often, but not to the level of being able to prevent the incident. There just isn't time. And yes, we can in that scenario take control of steering, throttle, and actually anchor deployment for some vessels. Because obviously the right thing to do in some circumstances when you realize you've lost control of the engine and you've not got steering is drop anchor. We can disable that by the same mechanism. So we, we've actually run that scenario as a full beginning to end scenario with a partner project of ours, CyberMar, a European funded project, where we started out with a phishing email sent to the engineering comp company responsible for maintenance on the ship. And through a fairly sophisticated attack, got malicious firmware installed within those control systems. From that point on, it's completely invisible. There's nothing you can do to observe it until it triggers at the entry to port. 
We've made those port entries according to proper pilot orders with pilots on board, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, unfortunately, it is realistic and it can happen. And I, and I say that because we really do check and double check that anything we're saying we can do, we can do on real equipment in real circumstances. So that makes it kind of more meaningful because some of them are low probability events. But low probability doesn't mean can't happen. We have seen scenarios that have been proposed in some other quarters. Someone like yourself could instantly say that couldn't happen for these reasons. I'm quite proud to say that to date, we have not had any scenario that we've actually run where somebody has said, well, that couldn't happen for these reasons. Occasionally, it's, well, you'd have to be lucky just there. But again, run it 10 times and it works nine times. I think that's sort of pretty strong evidence that it's real. Wow, that is that is fasc both fascinating and scary at the same time <laughs> uh, in re in reality. And you know, just walk walking through the scenario that you then that the that you then articulated is interesting because, again, I think many people you know wrongly assume when we're thinking about physical damage, PD type risk, what we refer to in the market. Yep. You know, it's back to this sort of collision situation and what have you, but. I like the idea here that you've created a sort of threat landscape that is, is related to two unrelated events, one being in, in Singapore, one being in, in Los Angeles. Yep. But I guess having the same hallmarks or you know, sufficiently close hallmarks enough to allow a bad actor to claim responsibility for the two separate events. And then to propose that you know, this may be embedded on other vessels, um, operational technology, and unless ransoms are paid, all hell could break loose um yeah i mean you just want to i mean because that in a way is and, and then of course you go on to say that you know vessels would be have, have to be put out of service ports would have to be closed uh, you'd have a, all of that sort of supply chain congestion on top of the already existing congestion we have as a consequence of all the other black swans that are flying around at the moment so <laughs> um i mean yeah just a little bit more color on on that 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 thinking because i think that's fascinating that's a something i hadn't really thought of really but one of the things that sort of the Bank of England were interested in when, when they came to us to talk about the possibility of realistic scenarios was it's sort of frightening but relatively easy to do something to one vessel. The real economic cost comes into play when, as you just said, you disrupt the ecosystem, when the supply chain is sort of in some ways broken. So the scenario they wanted was something that would be a realistic attack on a particular vessel that in and of itself would have consequences. Then it happens for a second time in an unrelated environment, but with enough similarity, as you said, to be able to claim that they are related. Then you claim, well, pretty much every vessel on the water is now vulnerable. So people would have to respond. If it turned out that you'd only actually managed to compromise those two ships, then you would still have the effect of having compromised a large portion of the fleet. Because just for sort of simple health and safety reasons, people would have to stop and investigate. And the kind of attack we're talking about is not easy to detect. So, you know, it isn't the case that the, the master could just say, well, go have a look and tell me if we're okay or not. The only way to really check would basically be to download the firmware on a control unit and have a look at it. I'm pretty sure that most operational vessels would not have anybody on board who could do that.
So if you really are worried about the consequences of exactly the same attack manifesting in your vessel when you get close to port, you'd have to stop. You'd basically have to sort of anchor up somewhere and wait until specialists can come out and actually have a look at what's going on in your control system. I'm sure you can imagine by that point, said specialists, of which there aren't many, would be in rather high demand and there'd probably be a backlog. So if you like, with two attacks, you're likely to have disabled a large number of vessels because of safety policy being followed in an appropriate way. So you add all that together and what, what the, the bank were interested in is, you know, the, the sort of global scale consequence of what appeared initially to be a local attack. And I think the sort of it is interesting because once again, it proves very analogous to what you were just saying about things we've seen in the sector recently. If you affect one part of it, that spreads. It is a very connected chain with, you know, sort of the, the dominoes, once they start to fall, can tend to go a long way. So malicious actors would have the capability and reach far beyond sort of the physical reach they'd have to various vessels. And we talked about when we were setting that up, there'd be sort of, there'd be very conscious timing. You know, one vessel would be attacked in a prominent way and people would talk about it. Then shortly after that, a second one. And then if you want to make it even worse, wait 24 hours for things to settle down and then trigger a third one. So, you know, you effectively get cascading and, and escalating issues based on then the uncertainty. And in some sense, to that kind of market, uncertainty is worse than knowing because there would be some people who'd say, well, we can't sit at anchor and wait for somebody to come to us. That might then be, but perhaps by happenstance, perhaps by deliberate targeting, another domino in that chain. So it wouldn't be very long before basically the entire sector would be out of action for a period of time, which would be measured by how quickly can you get out and look at these things. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is, you know, this this sort of follows on neatly from uh, our last podcast when we were speaking to a cybersecurity expert and he was really advocating the need for ship owners to think very carefully about the way in which they have ongoing monitoring of their IT and OT systems to see changes in system behavior. Um, whether you can do that with respect to firmware, I'm not sure, but as you say, the time to find out that the firmware has been corrupted and you know the operational system is manipulated isn't at the time that you're about to dock the vessel, it's beforehand. And I mean, are there systems out there that ship owners could deploy to assist with that risk mitigation? Yeah, so I mean, one of the other things we're very interested in is maritime cyber risk assessment. And, you know, sort of we, we have a framework for doing that in the context, not just of sort of the technical aspects of the IT system and the OT system, but also the mission, the cargo, the location and everything else. So while I think it is actually quite difficult to accurately monitor and reflect the risk for the individual vessel real time, because realistically speaking, we've, we've done this scenario in our lab on actual physical kit, and it's very hard to notice because the only thing that changes is you know, there, there are NEMA packets going into a control unit, basically saying, you know, rudder angle, this throttle position, that. Things coming out the back end say rudder angle, extreme port, throttle, full. There's nothing inherently wrong with those packets. It's just they are not appropriate for the context. So detecting that 
is very, very difficult. In fact, with existing systems, I don't think you can do it. Could you develop a really smart system that could notice it? Maybe. We're looking at things like that, but that's a long way out. What we would do with sort of the approach we take to cyber risk is, you know, the first ship, unfortunately, would probably be affected and, you know, bad actions would happen. But then if you were monitoring the risk profile sort of in a global sense, all other vessels that were within the monitoring system would then have their risk profile changed. And in our world, we'd notice, for example, that they shared a common control system. Therefore, we would elevate the risk for those vessels because of that fact. And then if a second one happened, and again, the commonality was seen to be the control system, we would then be saying, if you have a vessel with this type of control system, your risk has just gone up significantly. On the other hand, if you have a completely different kind of control system and there was no correlation with anything other than the control system, we'd probably say your risk profile is about the same. So if you look at it in more of a, a macro level and you're using a tool like our macro risk assessment tool, which takes things like this into account, then there's a chance you could give crew advanced warning that their threat profile had changed. I think it would be very difficult to detect until it triggered the kind of malware attack we're talking about. Because, you know, we were asked to design a realistic attack. Realistic attacks are not easy to detect by definition. So it would be more about how would the industry take advantage of, if you like, this intelligence to have proper procedures in place to do the right thing. Yeah, and I think that segues nicely into sort of one of my last questions, really, and that's around the dissemination of this information among ship owners and and really you know it seems to be crucially important to me that you know there is a level of training familiarity to risk managers within ship owning organizations to have at least a perception of, of the possible here and in terms of that that sort of risk assessment tool that you referred to a moment ago that the university has developed um, is that a commercial offering or is that academic? I mean, is that something that you offer commercially to ship owners? And, and if so, is, has there been much interest and in take up in that? Yeah, so I mean, actually, the university spun out a company specifically to sort of support the maritime cyber risk assessment, because it is something that we presented the academic model sort of a year or two ago. Um, it actually was uh, acknowledged as the best contribution to science of risk by Lloyd's a couple of years ago. But models are good. Actually doing it in action is where you benefit the sector. So we actually do have a company who will provide those risk assessments to the sector at any level from, you know, a generic desktop base. This is what uh, this is what the risk profile would look like for this kind of vessel up through to real time threat monitoring, taking into account sort of uh, other factors. So, yeah, the university does the university does have that as a scientific basis. And as I said, we, we have a startup, startup company that does provide that as a service. But going back to what you said about sort of, you know, appropriate training, one of the things we found interesting, because the university does have sort of maritime cyber risk sort of awareness courses, there are a few of them around now. What we do a bit differently is we are talking very specifically about maritime cyber risk, and we tend to take the, the students or the, the, the sort of attendees. And at the end of the day, put them in a simulator and let them see what a cyber attack looks like. And the one, the one we mentioned earlier about sort of, um, you know, um, 
closing the port in Valencia. That's actually quite visceral for a ship's crew because, you know, they're on final stage of a voyage, they're coming into a port. And even though they know they're in a cyber attack situation because they're on the course with us, it's still interesting to see well-trained crews responding in the way they're trained at a completely inappropriate cyber attack scenario. And generally, most of them end up grounding the ship. And that sort of leaves with, with a very clear impression that sort of this is real and serious. So we find that it's it's the appropriate level of training. You know, most master mariners don't need to know what a sort of heart poisoning packet redirection attack looks like. It isn't of interest to them. But it is important to know that if you see this kind of behavior on your bridge or in your control room, it is likely that it's a cyber attack. And some idea of what to do in those circumstances is very beneficial. So again, it's sort of, it's getting the right kind of training. I mean, my, my background is very much cybersecurity rather than sort of, you know, the, the maritime sector. But we have people within our group who are master mariners. What we find is it's finding something that's a genuine truth for both of us then makes sense when you pass it down. And I think one of the things that, again, as well as the being very realistic and true to fact, we try to be very appropriate to the sector and not speaking sort of cyber geek to a ship operator, but making it clear to them what it means to them and why they need to be aware of it. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, you know, I, back in the day when I was doing my master mariners courses and the like, I did a lot of simulator work, bridge resource management courses, you know, bridge management work. And, you know, we spoke at length and did a lot of training around situational awareness insofar as it related to your ordinary navigational duties and, and how to spot, you know, inconsistencies in what you expect to happen uh, versus what actually happens and then cre creating positive feedback to the to the master or whoever has the con to rectify the situation. But I think what you're saying there is, is, is interesting because it would sort of, you know, to use a, a strange word, but discombobulate you because it's it's not something you, you, you're necessarily going to anticipate or understand why it's happening. And yeah. I think, as you say, if you have a very short time frame within which to take remedial action to prevent the ensuing collision or elision or whatever, it, grounding or whatever it might be, uh, it would be very, very difficult to, without a good deal of training and, you know, visibility around how to detect this sort of situation, to respond in the right way. I mean, it's it's, it's very worrisome from a, a ship's officer's perspective, I guess. Well, what, what we found is, you know, well-trained crews are very good at responding to failure appropriately. So if we do something simplistic like disable the radar display or disable the actus, it, it's almost sort of, as you'd expect, a perfectly smooth transition to alternative means. No issue whatsoever. If, however, the actus and the radar are disagreeing with each other and both are lying, that's much harder for the crew to respond to because that's not sort of something that has historically happened in the real world. That's something that only happens with cyber intervention. And that's much more confusing because, you know, if you think about it, if you're navigating in through a pinch point and all of a sudden your actus goes down, you're right, head straight out the window, sort of situational awareness, maybe going back to manual plotting, you know how to deal with it. But if your actus is telling you absolutely that you are where you're supposed to be, the radar's telling you something else and the depth finder's going off when it shouldn't be, 
you then have a problem of who do you, of which system do you believe and what do you do about it? And that doesn't then immediately lead the crew to say, right, turn all this stuff off. We'll go back to sort of old school methods, which would happen if they failed. So one of the other things we're interested in have done experiments on is how far, I mean, candidly, how much can we mess with people before they realize we're doing it? And we, we've done some experiments in things like, you know, simulated traffic separation zones, where we'd actually kind of introduce GPS drift. And can we get people to basically break lane separation before they realize it by just, say, compromising the actors? The better the crew, the more devices we have to compromise. But we have, in some cases, got people to get about a, a kilometer off route before they said, hang on, something's not quite right here. I can, I can totally see that and, and totally understand how that might happen. I mean, I, I think as, as systems have evolved, there's, there's a degree of technical dependency and bias, you know, in, in many respects. You know, there, there, is, there is a bias towards what that machine's telling me has to be accurate. I've got to somehow prove that it's not, you know, I mean, it, 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 but the bias and the assumption is, you know, I'm looking out the window and that doesn't seem to be what's going on here, but, you know, what, why why can't I why can't I work out why why what, what's out the window isn't what's on the on the screen in front of me I, I want to believe the screen I, there is definitely that there is definitely that dependency and bias I think and as you say you can probably push a person a long way before they say hang on a second there's a rabbit away here and it, it's jeopardizing the navigational conduct and safety of this ship yeah um, amazing yeah well Kevin you know, I, I actually could go on talking for a long long time about all these <laughs> things because I find them hugely interesting and and the work that you're doing there at the university seems to be, um, you know, really needed in many respects um, and, and sort of ahead of its time in, in many ways as well. We, we do wish you the, the very best of luck with everything you're doing. And I'm sure it's uh, a very valuable service to the, to the shipping industry and the insurance industry for that matter as a whole. Uh, just one last closing question. So, I mean, this is the, I, I think I'm correct in saying this is the first time a maritime scenario has been involved in the general insurance stress test. Do you see that's been part and parcel of something going forward there? Will you have a continued involvement in that, do you think? I, I would hope so, because I mean, I think we've proven sort of, you know, in the global supply chain, maritime industry is absolutely critical. In fact, it's as critical a part of international infrastructure as many of the things we talk about as being critical national infrastructure so we would certainly hope that this continues to develop and we're very happy to come up with even more worst case scenarios when asked for them <laughs> all i can say is I'm, I'm pleased i'm driving a desk these days although that's not necessarily safe either with these uh these 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 cyber criminals around and and the wealth of uh, invaluable data we have as an insurance company that we have to protect. But hey, listen, thank you very much. It's, it's been a bit of a blast from the past speaking to um, a professor from my old university. Um, I've got fond memories of my time there in Plymouth. And uh, we, we thank you uh, on behalf of Shoreline and, and our listeners for your time today. All the best for the future. Thank you very much. We'd like to thank the show's sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited. The world and life at sea is changing on a daily basis. Shipping companies and owners are facing evolving threats from political risk to increased maritime cyber risk. Shoreline has the maritime insurance answers you need to make sure your company is covered when crisis strikes. 
Shoreline are providers of specialist maritime cybercrime and crisis response insurance policies. To learn more about these specialist covers, visit www.shoreline.bm today.